Hello and welcome to your latest edition of the Ulster Rugby Roundup. In the absence of Gareth Hanna, I am still your host, Jonathan Bradley. And in the interest of preaching evolution, not revolution, for the second week in a row, I am joined by Adam McAndrew. Hello, Adam. Nice to see you, lads. I'm Michael Sadler. Michael, how are you? Very well. How are you all? Good to be back. Well, we are coming to you a day later than usual, having... To use the Joe Schmidt parlance, taken our learnings from trying to schedule a podcast while I was jet lagged and did not know what day of the week or month of the year it is. But we have regathered and we will still be looking back at Japan, looking ahead to New Zealand, and we will discuss the latest controversy in the women's game as well. So we'll start chronologically. We will look at Japan now. We talked about this last week. I don't think any of us predicted Ireland to win by 55 points. I would have to check the tape, but I'm relatively sure that nobody was anticipating a margin of victory quite this wide. Michael, for you from this game, what stood out the most? Um, The style of play that Ireland brought, obviously, which is uh, what I think surprised uh, everybody. Um, Their willingness to offload, their willingness to attack, their offensive shape, some of their defensive work as well. If you like, they they, they brought a, a game plan and approach which we hadn't really seen before. One we certainly weren't expecting. It may well have been alluded to and talked of before, but no one saw this coming. Um, and it really was uh, stirring. It really, really good to watch. It, it actually was, it, it really restored your faith in the game after sitting through the dirge that was the Lions tour um, to see the game being played that way at test level. Was absolutely uh, was marvelous, but um, but there's always a but, isn't there? There has to be. Um, you have to say that Japan were absolutely diabolical. They looked a pale shadow of even themselves over the course of the summer. They've had very little Test rugby. They looked thoroughly unprepared and completely and utterly. Uh, you know, they 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 just brought nothing to the party whatsoever. But having said that. Where do you find the right balance? Do you take it something away from Ireland or do you just praise them to the hilt? Um, I don't know. Um, I've rarely seen uh, an opposition as supine as that. And I've also never really seen Ireland that I can recall play like that either. So I have no idea where to pitch this. It was fantastic to watch. They scored some absolutely marvellous tries. Um, But what does it all mean? I honestly am scratching my head. I guess we're going to find out on Saturday just exactly what it all means because here we're going to have probably very likely a team that aren't going to be anything like Japan. (laughs) So we're going to find out if indeed uh, this means anything and even if Ireland are going to take that approach as well. Well, it is, I suppose, noteworthy that even without that lack of test rugby that has been pointed to, Japan still pitched up in a much better shape, albeit against a much changed Ireland side during the summer. And they did really push Australia quite close in their previous game whenever they were within a score later on and then conceded the intercept that sort of put a gloss on it for the for the Wallabies. So to to that point, Adam, like how much of this do you think was Ireland being as good as we've seen them under Andy Farrell and how much of this was just getting opposition on the day that were um, just incredibly open, I suppose? Well, I think we'd be a lot more, we'd have a lot more trepidation coming from this game if Ireland had played as we've known them to play in previous games and they'd performed like, and they put that score on them because you'd have still said the game plan looks a little bit turgid and boring. But the fact that Ireland played a game that was expansive, I think they had something like 24 offloads or something like that, which is way up on anything we've ever seen from an Andy Farrell team and even stretching back to to Joe Schmidt's time. I don't think we saw anything close to that in terms of offloads. I think only seven box kicks as well over the course of 80 minutes, which is a massive takeaway uh, or turnaround from what they've been doing before. So the style of play, I think, completely changes how you look at this game because you can see progression from Ireland. It's not a case of Ireland got it Got a, got a team on the day who played poorly. They did, but it's not purely down to that. It's down to the fact that Ireland are 
progressing as a team. You can, you can see the changes that they made and the improved attacking shape, the approved, improved attacking style. Um, and therefore, that is cause for celebration. That's something that you should be looking at and thinking, this is good. Now, on the flip side of that, to bounce off the back of what Michael said, Japan were poor. Japan were really poor. And um, I was shocked at how little resistance they put up because I was expecting them to, I was expecting them to lose, but I was expecting them to put up at least some kind of a fight. But I think once Ireland sort of ran in two or three very early, the fight just went out of them and they sort of realized that it wasn't going to be their day. Um, and especially how easy some of those tries were early on, like James Lowe's try from the beginning, the complete lack of backfield defence just to me showed a complete lack of tactical execution in defence from Japan. And I think that probably would have hurt them more than anything, just how easy Ireland were able to get on the scoreboard and then just consistently keep racking up the tries. So to, to sort of take, you know, how much do you put this on Ireland being good and how much do you put this on Ireland being bad? I would be leaning a little bit more towards Ireland being good purely because we, we saw them have that little bit extra attacking edge that we didn't see them have before, even though they were on that sort of winning run. This is the first time that you really looked at Ireland and thought, man, I really enjoyed watching that. Not just because the win was big, but I really enjoyed the style that they were playing. You have forwards making really good tip-on passes. You had some really good uh, interplay between the backs as well. I thought Bandiaki had an underrated game at 12, just with what he was able to bring as, as a deception uh, sort of back where he was running those lines. Um, so yeah, I would, I would be a lot more encouraged than sort of being or having a bit of trepidation about uh, this result. I think this was a very positive step forward. You mentioned Bundy there, Adam. Um, Michael, to look at it in a bit more of a, a granular sense of the performance, which player stood out for you? Oh, Johnny Sexton, of course. Um, actually, so many of them. Jack Conan was at another, you know, really, really outstanding game. Type Furlong, uh, Gibson, Jameson Gibson Park was excellent, really good, really enjoyed the speed of ball and the ability then to be able to, to, to use that ball and, and, and not necessarily deploy the Conor Murray-esque box kick and, and, and you know, to, to, to get things going. Andrew Conway, of course, with his hat-trick, who we had talked about last week, if I remember, as being, no, he's not going to get in really, is he? He doesn't really, you know, and then he comes I feel home, like it's important to note, just and, in case anyone wasn't listening last week, we said we really like him, but he doesn't seem to yeah. get the minutes that he deserves. It wasn't us no. saying he shouldn't be playing, it was saying no. we're looking at the we trends. Didn't get in. Yeah. And when he does get in, it's usually, you know, against teams, well, I suppose, not, not the main event. It'll be very interesting to see if he keeps his place for Saturday. Hope he does, but uh, and he should. Um, you know, I, I could go on. I mean, nobody had a bad game. They were all really, really good, though. I have to say, I didn't think Ty Byrne played quite as well as he might have done. But then I sometimes wonder whether he's better as a six than in the engine room. And also, you know, that sort of breakdown presence. Ireland didn't necessarily have to have that. They were getting so much quick ball, had so much time to do what they wanted to do. And Hugo Keenan's fantastic pass, for instance, what was it, over 20 metres left mm -hmm. off his left hand for Andrew Conway. You know, you, you could talk and talk and talk about it. It, it was, you know, the, I, I, you know the, those, those players I mentioned were outstanding, but they nearly all were. They nearly all played at their optimum, um, which is a hard thing to do, even, even against opposition that aren't functioning. Adam, what I'm interested to know is, because Michael's mentioned these guys here, Jack Conan, Jameson Gibson-Park, Hugo Keenan. We saw Keenan's pass, obviously, a sort of hallmark from the sevens. I've maybe been guilty in the past of not appreciating that passing ability that he has, but it is something that is obviously honed in that uh, shorter-sided code where you do have to make those lengthier lengthier passes. So that I thought that was interesting to see the pass for the Conway try. Sorry, I'm talking about um, Jack Conan carrying in the, carrying in that Lions form and the tempo of Jameson Gibson Park at nine. To what extent do you think it's fair to say that those three players, having come in, not been involved really under Joe Schmidt? Obviously, Conan was, but uh, not as a starter really. 
to what extent did that make it feel like to you that we were seeing Andy Farrell's Ireland rather than a continuation of Joe Schmidt's Ireland? And that's not a knock on Joe Schmidt's Ireland. Obviously, it was the most successful Irish rugby team any of us have ever seen. But um, just in terms of the point of difference of why this Saturday felt different. Well, the first point I want to make is Jack Conan, I feel, as somebody who... I think needed a performance and that's strange to say as someone who was a British and Irish lion but bear in mind he was probably the shock British and Irish lion nobody really thought he would go and certainly even within Leinster circles there's a feeling that Caelan Doris is your number eight not Jack Conan so for Conan to come straight back into Ireland and say no this number eight jersey is mine and put in a performance like he did um, I think will be massive for him, is massive for Ireland as well. And I was delighted because I think Conan is a cracking player. And whenever all that discussion was going on about a player moving from Leinster to Ulster, I think he was probably the one that most people wanted to wanted to move. And you can sort of see why that that was going to be. He was um, allegedly very impressed by the presentation. That was all that was all that we ever heard of. You know, they were close to getting him, but they, I can't even remember what point this was at. It must have been like 20. 15 or 2016 no. to, to, to put it to put it in American football terms they got him to the one yard line then he got sacked yeah uh, <laughs> prior to Jordy coming up anyway like in yeah. the seasons before that so it must have been I don't know 2014 but um, but, to, but to take your point about Farrell I think one of the things that Andy Farrell has struggled with is getting out of the shadow of Joe Schmidt because Joe Schmidt was obviously a fantastic tactical coach. Everything was drilled down to the nth degree. Every player knew where they were going to be on the pitch at any given moment. And if you didn't execute correctly, you would know about it in the Monday review. And very likely you probably wouldn't get a chance to rectify it on the pitch the next week if you didn't own up and say, yeah, I messed up there. So Andy Farrell was always going to be, how how he took Ireland on from that was going to be very, very interesting. And I think what we saw on Saturday was the first real indication that Ireland are not going to play like Joe Schmidt had them playing whenever he was in charge, which is a bit more off the cuff. Sure. There's still, there is still a a system there and there's still plans in place. Don't get me wrong. But I think what you saw, especially from Gibson park and whenever Murray came on, we've, um, we've seen the video of him saying to Jack Conan, JC, give me an 8-9, give me an 8-9. You know, spotting that there is a gap that perhaps they didn't see whenever they were playing the or drawing up the plan beforehand. He spots it whenever he gets to the scrum and you make that call at the last second. You chip down the line and I think it's Conway scores off that one. Um, so just the ability to back guys to if they see something that doesn't fit into the plan, but they think is better, go for it. You know, you always talk about controlled chaos and I know that's a very Leinster term, but I think it's, it's very apt given 12 of the team were Leinster men on Saturday. You know, you've got to be able to spot the gaps within the plan. And if the plan's not working, then throw it out the window and try something. Now, Japan aren't the best opposition to try that against because they offered very little resistance in the first place. But I think a lot of the stuff that you did see was guys making decisions that perhaps were not drawn up in the training room on Tuesday or Wednesday and spotting things and going for it. And that, for me, is a lot more beneficial to Ireland because Ireland have a lot of players in that team that... If you give them the chances to try something, they will do something. And it benefits guys coming through as well. You know, Tagburn's not a guy that will uh, will stick to a rigid plan. He's a guy who will go in for that turnover whenever he sees it available. And he is a guy who loves to get his hands free and get an offload off. So where do guys like that fit into a plan? And I think you're sort of realizing that Ireland don't really fit into a plan very well. But whenever you give them that license to play, they could be a very exciting team and that, and I know we'll get onto it, but that to me makes this all black scheme really interesting because do you stick to a plan and try and have a plan to beat the all blacks? Or do you say last week worked really well? So we're going to try that again, but we'll get onto that. We'll, we're not at that stage yet. And I don't like Michael, I don't even want to look at this as a break from 2019, but as a break from 2018, I suppose of when Ireland 
peaked under Joe Schmidt. We had the replacing of Rory Best, which had to happen because Best retired. We had the replacement of Rob Carney, which happened because Carney went to Australia. I suppose technically Jack Conan has never been a first choice really for Ireland at number eight until CJ Stander departed and we're obviously only, I suppose, one game into Jack Conan being an Ireland player without CJ Stander, if you follow me. So how big a change is Jamison Gibson Park from Connor Murray? And I suppose the big question is how much of that is pure selection and how much of that is because Murray had only played 20 minutes coming into camp? Like, do you think that, because we've all been guilty of looking ahead to Craig Casey and even looking beyond Craig Casey and looking to Nathan Doak, but is Jamison Gibson Park now Ireland's first choice number nine? Yeah. Oh, first of all, sorry about the phone ringing. I know we let that out. I thought it was in silent, by the way. Um, anyway. Live podcast issues. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that, that is a very interesting question. I think it's quite possible we all thought that Conor Murray wasn't selected due to the lack of game time, but the way that I, the, the approach Ireland took in the Japan game might well suggest now that wasn't the case and that James Gibson Park was very much part very much part of, of the all-out attack plan um, that they had uh, they'd drawn up and, and in, were intent on deploying. As to what they do on Saturday, whether they really do go for that or not again, I do not know. If if Jameson Gibson Park ends up on the bench and they start Conor Murray, you would suggest that that's not the case. That would look like, you know, they're drawing the reins in a wee bit on this one uh, because of the quality of the opposition. Uh, but, you know, James and Gibson Park should not be dropped um, for what he did on Saturday. That would be, that, that that just sends out, I think, the wrong message, doesn't it? And it would almost be, if you like, a very conservative selection if he decided that Murray's experience and ability to tactically kick would, you know, if he decided that that was a preferred means of operating, uh, what sort of message that, that sends out. So it's actually quite interesting now because, first of all, nobody saw that game plan coming against Japan and nobody certainly saw the result against Japan, the nine-try drubbing. Uh, and equally now, because of all that, we're all scratching our heads wondering, is this really the start of a brave new world? Is he going to rain back? We have no idea. How is it going to be that they're going to approach this game on Saturday because this is an entirely different beast, whatever way you look at it. Well, that's the crux of this issue. And it's a reason why I think as much as there's a buzz about the All Blacks coming into the time, and there always is, even though we've talked about this, you know, you see them a lot more often than you used to. But um, so much of the intrigue around this game now for me is going to be in terms of style of play. Are Ireland going to implement what we saw on Saturday again against better opposition? And like this is something that I wrote about in the paper today. Like if you only played against that way because of the Japan, they gave you those, um, you know, they gave you those sh- short lines through the middle, essentially that um, paid such dividends. You're not going to get that against a more physical team or even just a bigger team because we know Japan play in a different way because they are just much smaller than most international teams. That's just the facts of the situation. So if it turns out on Saturday that this was just a horses for courses type (laughs) performance, like Japan offered something to them and Ireland took it, then do you think, Adam, that we've built towards something from an Irish perspective, or do you think that all the progress that we imagine that we saw from them on Saturday is lost if they, um, in victory or defeat, play in a different way on Saturday? Well, this is where the question comes up. Are you going to beat the All Blacks playing the same way you did against Japan? And I would be inclined to say no, because pretty much for the same reasons you've just outlined, Johnny, New Zealand aren't going to give you those short lines. They're not going to be so wasteful in possession. You know, one one of the big things that I think Ireland didn't really have to deal with was prolonged periods where the opposition had the ball. (laughs) New Zealand are going to have a lot more of the ball than Japan did, and they're going to do a lot more with it. 
So whenever you have that defensive side of the game to worry about for many more minutes, then it does limit what you can do offensively. So I I don't think it necessarily undoes the progress that has been made if Ireland change up their style, but only to an extent. If they completely do a 180 and completely change their style, then yes, I think it undoes all that good work. I think you have to retain some of the stuff that you've done against Japan in order for it to be uh, beneficial because you know you you can you you need to have a plan in place to beat the All Blacks. You will not beat the All Blacks playing off the cuff. But if you go in there so rigidly structured that you don't allow for any kind of deviation from what you were doing against Japan, then there really was no point in doing what you did against Japan because all you've done is for one game take your players away from what you want them to be doing long term. So this is sort of a sticker twist moment for Andy Farrell where he really lays out his plan of am I going to be the coach that allows the reins to be taken off these guys whenever we play the big teams and allow them to try and express themselves in a bid to get a win? Or am I going to be the coach that whenever it comes to these big games, I'm going to essentially just harness them and say, we do this my way or we don't do it at all. Um, It may not work this week. And this is the thing whenever we were talking last week about Ireland's long-term vision where you look at how you want the team to be playing going into the World Cup and you talk about the players that you want going into the World Cup. It may not be that on this occasion you beat the All Blacks with the style that you're going forward with and the players that you're going forward with, but if you look at the plan that you have in place and you execute it to the best of your ability against the All Blacks and it still doesn't work, well, you can at least go away saying, all right, that's not going to work in the future. Or if it comes close to being the All Blacks or it does beat the All Blacks, you can say, well, look, this plan works. We just need to execute a little bit better next time. So this is a good first sort of proving ground for what Andy Farrell's going to do. You just really hope he doesn't deviate back to what it was before. You really hope he does approach it in sort of a similar style to how they did the Japan game. Yeah, that's the key. I think you've... uh... You've really hit on the key point there of if you're not going to persist with this style, then there's no point trying it against the likes of Japan because if you can't utilize it against better teams, then you basically just wasted one of your, whatever it was, 20 test matches that you had between the start of this window and um, and the opener of the World Cup. Now, we spoke last week about selection and I asked somewhat tongue-in-cheek if we expected any Ulsterman to be involved. Um, in the game I think we all expected one no we didn't get him I'm not going to talk too much about selection for this week but mainly due to the fact that by the time this podcast is out the team will probably be out as well but what do we think about Ian Henderson's prospect moving forward do we think that what he showed at his cameo and I think probably more importantly the style that Ireland played and whether that style suits Ian Henderson more than it suits James Ryan. What do we think about Henderson's prospects as an Ireland starter in the longer term than just this week? He did exceptionally well when he came on because he had to show up. He had to show himself. I don't know if he's going to be part of the overall plan, certainly himself and James Ryan. I don't think it's a case of him coming in for James Ryan. I think he, the way he played probably does suit it. It's really a question of whether it's really him or Ty Byrne, particularly this weekend. Um, if you want, I would just, I would just ask you though. Um, we're talking about two men, one of whom was a lion and one of whom wasn't. Mm. So, is it fair to say that whenever we pencil in Ty Byrne and whenever we ink in James Ryan, are are we being fair? Like, is James Ryan still that guy that he was? Sorry, not is he still that guy? Is he still performing to that level that we really saw and thought, you know, this guy is going to be a definite starter for the next 10, 12 years? Like, is it not fair to say, I suppose, that the way that Henderson's played over the last year, he's been better than James Ryan? And there's nothing to say that if somebody is going to be displaced out of that second row unit, that it could be James Ryan. 
I'm going to ask them a question. This is the great thing about being the host. You can just put this out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you don't have the consequences of answering. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think James Ryan's in there. Um, I really do. Um, he, he isn't quite, he wasn't quite the same as he was, you know, leading up the Lions tour. Definitely there's a dip there. I saw certainly, again, what can you read into that? A lot more against Japan. Um I, I know I, I do. I think he's your frontline man in there, and then it's a question of who who play who who plays with him. Um, it be, I, I think it probably should be in Henderson this week, um, with the likes of Metallic and Whitelock around. Uh, and I don't see why he can't play that style of game if they have some sort of hybrid of it again uh, on, on Saturday. Um, certainly, he probably wouldn't do the full eighty where James Ryan probably would, which is another reason why he would probably go with James Ryan first and foremost as well. He'll stay the full distance. Um, but, um, it, it, you know, that's one of the really, really intriguing things about the selection. What is he going to tweak? Um, should he really bring a more, perhaps arguably more natural second row into the second row? Or is he going to use that ability that Ty Byrne has at the breakdown and with link play and, and with carrying... Um, just a little bit more dynamism. Hmm. I don't know. I just don't know. It's one of the. It's one of the, the really, really good calls. From an Ulster point of view, you very much want to see him back uh, because it's really where he ought to be, and he's had a pretty rough time of it on the Lions tour. Let's face it, um, and he hasn't really, didn't really get back in time because of the injury issues. I know he wouldn't have played much for Ulster anyway, but I, you know, I think it would be. It's very tempting, but it's very hard to change a team that's scored nine tries in Test Rugby the week before. But if there was going to be a tweak, and I'm sure probably, yeah, I guess Adam might take the same view, it would be, one of them would be that you would go with Hendy to see how you go. Because you just just need that extra oomph up front. I've just made the mistake of looking up James Ryan on Wikipedia and he's younger than me, which is a real blow to my self-esteem because anytime no, I discover worry, in Ireland... It'll pass, Adam. Don't worry. You'll you'll not you'll not be younger than Irish players that much longer, really. <laughs> I was gonna I say, mean, don't worry, mate. They're all younger than me, apart from Saxon. But then uh, I'll defer to defer to my senior colleague. He can safely say that they're all older than him. Well, like, yes, like, by by some, I'm well, all younger than me. I am safely older than all of them, and believe you me, it will happen. And one day you'll just look and go, "Hang on a minute, what happened there?" Yeah. It's coming, guys. Yeah. Anyway, when never it, mind. When, <laughs> whenever you're 25, the you... player this year had they not signed Dwayne Vermeulen? Yeah, I think we had that discussion before. But whenever you're 25, you kind of hope that, like, and it's, it's not even like he's making his first appearance. Like James Ryan is a very established member of the squad now, so <laughs> that just makes me feel all the older. Look, um, I can't disagree oh, with Michael. Gosh. I can't really disagree with Michael. Um, there, I think James Ryan is the man in the second row and I think we've seen that um over the past few years and I I don't think that's going to change moving forward and I look I still think James Ryan is a quality player I think he his eye-catching contributions aren't quite as notable as what they were whenever he first broke into the, onto the scene but if you look at his stats you know he's still making 20 odd tackles in most games he's still uh making a good number of carries even if they're not big strong carries that they were in the past so I, I still don't think you can downplay him the big question for me more than is James Ryan your man is are you getting the best out of Tag Burn in the second row and I would say no I think Tag Burn is a blindside flanker I think if you put him there you get more out of him both in terms of carrying and at the breakdown so if you want him in your team I would put him at six. I would start Henderson at flanker. It's Sorry, I would start Henderson in the second row. It's tough on Keelan Doris, who I think is a quality player. But this is the depth that Ireland have in the back row now that you're talking about, guys. Like, you forget, you know, you've got Nick Timoney waiting in the wings. You've got Gavin Coombs, who is now injured. But, you know, before that, he's been absolutely outstanding for Munster for the past sort of year, two years, waiting in the wings. It's just the depth that Aaron have in the back row. And I think if you want your best balanced back row, that means putting Henderson in second row, Byrne at six, uh, Van der Fleer at seven, and uh, Conan at eight with Doris on the bench. 
Well, it's an interesting debate, I think, of how much, uh, I suppose, form is viewed in the long term and the short term. Because I think you could argue that over the past year or so, Ian Anderson's been uh, in better form than James Ryan anyway. But moving on from that, we'll look at another shamelessly Ulster centre question. And Michael, was this a bad weekend for Jacob Stockdale? Well, I mean, he's injured anyway, but um, when, when, when you're injured, there's nothing you can do. Um, I would say that's a, that's a very hard question to answer, Johnny. That's a, that's a nasty one. Um, well, I'd say that... Um, Lowe's best game for Ireland. I think that's fair to say. That and is entirely fair to say, yes. Jacob Stockdale has always been Ireland's number 11, I think, when fit since coming in. Yes. And, and this of is course, quite probably got... the first time that somebody has come in come into what would be seen as his jersey. And even when his form hasn't been his top level, has outperformed what he's been putting on the pitch in recent games. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's got the big left boot too, of course. So he's he's replicating him in, in, in another way. I thought it was very interesting that Andy Farrell described him. He didn't really want you know, he described him as not a tidy player. And he didn't particularly want them that way. Can you imagine Joe Schmidt ever saying that? Just we were talking about that earlier. And no, I'm not dodging the question. I'm going to get on to it now. I think he implied um, Craig Gilroy at one point, and then he never played for Ireland again. Craig Gilroy scored an untidy hat trick, and then that was it. <laughs> that was it. Yes, exactly. So uh, James Lowe was very much uh, the man of the moment. We we did, or maybe I, I I did allude to the fact that I didn't see James Lowe getting in this team. I knew Andy Farrell liked him, and Farrell was obviously very impressed and went to pains to describe the work that James Lowe had done to improve himself so he could play at test level, implying that he clearly, which we all saw, wasn't quite at the mark before. Um, Jacob Stockdale will be watching this naturally and thinking, mm, James Lowe is a, another, you know, very much another version, if you like, of him with his, as we said, the, the, the siege boot, the, you know, the, uh, with the left peg, uh, the dynamism, the ability to score tries and sniff out tries, you know, the ability to finish. Um it's not a great weekend for him. No, no, I suppose looking at, at another player who would probably remind him, you know, a bit of himself uh, getting lauded so much. But as we all know, and, and it is totally with the territory, when you're injured, which happens all the time, there's nothing you can do about it. Someone gets another opportunity and they either take it, oops, sorry, they either take it or, or they don't. In this instance, James Lowe very much did. And you would like to think again that continuity being what it is, that he's going to trust him in theory to 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 play the All Blacks to his home country, and so we were talking about so many Leinster players before. Could be three Kiwis on this team facing their uh, their homeland, very likely to be in the twenty three at least anyway, which is another interesting one. But I'd say Jacob is very disappointed again, and uh, that, that that at this juncture, watching the way Ireland were playing, that he didn't he didn't get a chance to show what he can do. And to just put a cap on the uh, on the weekend to come, I suppose um, I will ask you that awkward, ask you both that awkward question of how do we think this game's going to go on Saturday? Do we think I know it's difficult having not seen the teams yet, but do we think this could be another famous victory, or do we think New Zealand are going to be too good for Ireland? First of all, I'm going to start by saying I think the result is secondary here to what we were talking about earlier which is how Ireland approach this game now if they end up getting thumped you know 65 <laughs> a reverse of last week then okay maybe maybe the result does become a little bit paramount but as long as they're not humiliated on home turf I think as long as they play in that similar style or similar-ish style to what they produced against Japan then I think the result doesn't matter massively. Look, we all know New Zealand are good. They put out their second string last week and they beat Italy, what was it, 47-9, 49-7 or something like that. So that just shows the remarkable amount of depth that the All Blacks can just rotate their squad at will and still produce performances like they do. So if Ireland are going to win this, it is going to need something very close to a 10 out of 10 performance from them. Maybe we'll we'll give them a little bit of wiggle room with nine and a half out of 10. We'll, we'll get them over the line. But um, I'm going to say New Zealand are going to win this. But I think Ireland might still come away pretty happy 
from from the afternoon in terms of how they perform. It's interesting because obviously there's parallels with that 2013 game that was lost and don't get me wrong, felt very much like a loss, but um, at the same time, essentially felt like it was the beginning of something rather than when Ireland last played the All Blacks and it felt very much like the end of something. Well, this this is the first game where I think you will really see where Ireland's priorities lie, whether it's short-term or long-term. The Japan game, they should have won regardless of whether they were looking long-term or short-term. That was just a game that they should have won. This is a game where they're not expected to win. If they come away from this game saying to themselves, we're devastated, we didn't win that (laughs) game, then I think you're looking too short-term. If you come away from this game having played well and still losing, I think you should be coming away feeling okay with yourselves because you're looking long-term and there's a bigger picture in place. By all means, be upset if you lose because no team ever likes losing. You should always want to win a game. But if you come away beating yourself up over a good performance, then I think they haven't got their priorities right at this stage. Well, Michael, just to, I suppose, to carry that point to its conclusion, it's a 10-point spread, so I'll not ask you, do you think Ireland will win? I'll ask you, do you think that they will finish within 10 points? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, and I do think the result's absolutely paramount. Um, just look at the history of Ireland-New Zealand games. They have got close on a number of occasions before they finally got over the line, and no one ever thought they would do it. But every one of those defeats is, uh, you know, you may have said 2013 was the start or something, but every one of those defeats hurts very, very deeply. New Zealand are the very acme of rugby union. And if you're serious about where you're going, you want to beat them. You don't really care how you beat them or what style or anything else you bring. You want to beat them. You have to beat them. Now, albeit when it really matters and things like World Cups, no, it doesn't seem to work at all for Ireland. This is their opportunity. This is a very, very important game. I am genuinely no idea if he's going, if Andy Farrell is going to try to deploy these tactics again because they could get severely, severely picked off. What we've watched a week ago was a training exercise. And when that happens, that in no way challenges you or puts pressure in key areas. You have a a romp, you enjoy it, but you don't learn a great deal about what the situation will be like when you're put under pressure. This is what this will be like. I do think they will get close. I don't think they're going to get hammered. They do tend to perform well, reasonably well in in Dublin, and and they can make themselves competitive. But I don't think that coming away from that game and saying, yeah, you know, we really did, that was good. We we did pretty well there. Of course, we weren't going to beat them, but we did pretty well, and we did this, and we did that. I don't think that's sufficient. I think you've got to go further than that, and you've got to win the game. And I, I don't know. Whether you win it by 9-0, which is highly unlikely in these instances, or whether, as Eddie O'Sullivan says, you've got to, you've got to basically, you know, what was it, the 20-point mark or whatever, you've got to get that. I think that's what he said, um, to have any chance a minimum of. I think that this, this match, as always, would be of huge, of paramount importance to the development of this squad, development of the side, and the way Andy Farrell wants to play. But I think it's also of paramount importance that if he wants to make a statement about where Ireland are really going under his reign. You've got to pick these guys off. You've got to do them. And somehow or other, no matter how you go about it, you've got to win the game. And I don't think coming away thinking, well, you know, we got darn close, just like we did. And, you know, you name it, 2013 or maybe 2001 and 2012 in Christchurch, whatever, whatever. That's not sufficient because we've been through all that so many times. You've got to beat New Zealand and you've got to lay down a marker. And I think, I'm not saying they will do it. I have a horrible feeling they won't, but I, I do think it's actually going to be very close, very competitive, and hopefully as exciting as we all, you know, are, 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 are hoping it will be. It's an interesting subplot, I think, obviously, just uh, how few players in this team will have beaten the All Blacks. Like you think 2018, certainly, but even 2016, to me, anyway, still feels quite recent. But there has been a decent churn of players now from those games, a lot of these guys will be, if not facing the All Blacks for the first time, then going for their going for the first win against them. And as you know, to Michael, a few boys um, who would have grown up looking to be All Blacks now playing against them. But um, 
having beaten the All Blacks going into the World Cup in 2019, it didn't help there, did it? No, but it doesn't when it matters. This is this is when you beat them. You beat them in your autumn series. That's when you beat them in the autumn. You don't beat them when it gets to a World Cup. You just don't, you know. But, that's but then again, it, that's we, we all we, you know we all thought they couldn't beat them ever anyway, and they went and did it. But in Chicago, they were sucker punched the All Blacks big style. And then obviously, what happened in Dublin in what was it 2018 uh, was a much more satisfying, if you like, way of going about it. But you don't beat them when when the, when the chips are down. You tend Ireland tend obviously don't beat them and don't do very well at World Cups. And the two do correlate because you've got to do well at World Cups, and sooner or later you're going to have to beat them in order to do that. Doesn't I think that, I think the the better way to be prepared to beat the All Blacks <clears throat> in the World Cup, if it comes to that point, is to make sure that you are secure in your game plan and you know that you can execute on the biggest stage whenever you get there. It shouldn't matter the opposition. I know it does, and beating the All Blacks would be massive for their confidence if they came up against them at a <clears> World <throat> Cup. But I think more important is to make sure you're getting that game plan nailed down as soon as possible and just continuing that through. I'm not, I completely take your point. You know, if Ireland are beaten by two points and they come away saying, oh, you know, we're happy enough. Like, I've, I think that's wrong. But if you come away saying we're not happy at all, because we lost, even if they put in a good performance within their game plan, I think you're not looking at the right aspects. I think at this point, if you are executing your game plan and you are getting your game plan nailed down and that's working well, I think that bodes better for long-term than if you pick up a win over the All Blacks, but you stray away from your game plan and you're not executing that correctly. I think everything has to be geared to making sure your, your squad are confident that on any given day, and especially in the big games, whenever it comes down to the knockout stages of the World Cup, because bear in mind, Andy Farrell, where he will be judged as a coach is whether he can lead Ireland to the semifinals of the World Cup, as will any Ireland head coach until Ireland reach the semifinals of the World Cup. It's all about making sure that whenever it comes to the knockouts of 2023, you execute and getting it right now will be much more beneficial to them in two years' time. Incidentally, another subplot is, of course, on, on the All Black side. They've got John John Plumtree and Greg Feek and the coaching team, mm. who've also had time with Ireland forwards coach, scrum coach, I believe, as well. So that's another little twist to it all. Yes, and obviously, you're talking about whether it comes down to play New Zealand at the World Cup, and unfortunately, even if it doesn't come down to New Zealand, that only means it will come down to playing France. But there is more than one team in green in action this week. And obviously with the Ireland woman playing USA <laughs> in Dublin on Friday night, but that is a game that has been massively, massively overshadowed by what appears to be the simple boiling over of feeling towards how the women's game in Ireland is being treated. There's been plenty of interesting mm. stuff out over the last sort of 24 to 48 hours. Adam, what's been your reading on all of this? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to sort of try and condense this down a bit because there's been a lot said. So if, if you want sort of the detailed story, you can uh, read it in the Belfast Telegraph. Um, but essentially, Anthony Eddy, who is the head of, uh, sorry, the RFU's director of women's and sevens rugby, just to give him his exact title, um, has essentially said that the feelings for Ireland, not re- Ireland women not reaching the World Cup is not down to structures and not down to uh, the systems within Irish women's rugby. Now, he stopped short of saying that the failings were due to the coaches and the players, but he very much insinuated it by not saying it was down to the the structures and systems sort of within club rugby and uh, the Ireland system, essentially. And that has led to former players and indeed current players who are preparing for this weekend's game against the USA, speaking out very strongly against them and saying, this isn't, this isn't the case. You don't know what you're talking about. So I'm just trying to find the exact quote here. Um, Cloda Maloney, who is one of the ones who's currently in the squad uh, preparing for that game on Friday night, uh, she put out a tweet 
saying I could have sworn slurry I could have sworn slurry spreading season was spring. I stand corrected. I trust everyone can read into that what she actually means. Um, I know Claire Malloy, uh, recently retired, was another one who strongly spoke out on Twitter. But it's just it's essentially a civil war within the RFU between uh, those in the back room and those on the pitch uh, as to where the feelings really lie. And it's a really interesting thing that has cropped up as the Ireland women's team for the first time take their games to a slightly bigger stadium. They're going to be playing at the RDS. And all of a sudden on the eve of these games happening, they, they've got this brewing. So it's just a very interesting one to keep an eye on because at the moment it's just words being exchanged. There's been no sort of sit down meetings to clear the air or anything like that. It's just uh, one side reacting to what the other has said, but certainly, you know, if the players feel like the man who is in charge of essentially directing the entire women's game in Ireland is not doing what's in their best interests, then the voices are only going to keep getting louder and louder, especially if they're already coming from within the squad. I think the most interesting thing is the fact that, you know, it's not just former players or players on the periphery who are saying it. It is a player who is actively involved in the squad. Yeah, you're 100% right on that because in the past, there's been this sense that there was a fear and an understandable fear because people don't want to cost themselves caps. Obviously, that's understandable. But the people didn't want to put their head above the parapet and put themselves out there, criticize, and then end up out of the team. And there was a very real fear. I know that that's what was going to happen. So to see this now, I think with current players, shows you the depth of feeling and the reaction to that Anthony Eddy interview and you know, you can talk about reviews and you can point to these things. Um, oh, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing whatever. But I think the most striking thing to me was the lack of urgency. Like there's, an, there's a lack of accountability, obviously. So Catherine Dayan, who's a 24-year-old, 25-year-old woman who has an awful lot of other things on her plate, what was studying and whatnot, everything else that she has to focus upon, can come out and say... Yes, as players, we have to own part of this, and I don't think we did well enough to qualify for the World Cup. If she can come out and show that level of accountability when she has so much else that should be taking her focus, for there not to be that same amount of accountability from the people that are being paid to be in charge of this is striking to me. But One of, one of the things that Anthony Eddy said specifically about the World Cup, and I'm going to agree with, uh, yourself and Catherine there, Johnny, which is that Ireland did not perform in the World Cup qualifiers. They have invented themselves and it was clear to see that in that little mini tournament, they just didn't perform up to standard. But one of the things that Anthony Eddy has said about that was that Ireland's preparation had been better than the other competing nations. So if your preparation is good enough, where is the failing then? If you're if you're a hundred percent prepared compared to teams that Eddie is claiming that were maybe ninety percent prepared or eighty percent prepared, why were your players then not in a position to capitalize on that and qualify? That they've got to figure that out. And he he cites you know the Premiership 15s in England being having improved, which is why England are getting better, and the French league has improved which is why the French team are getting better. But then ask, where's the All-Ireland League? He mentioned the fact that it's getting to that position. But the fact is now that there have been reviews upon reviews from the IRFU as to where the women's game is going, and they're still falling behind, even though the reviews are supposed to be keeping them on a par or, more ideally, pushing them ahead of their rivals. Well, that's so, the key, that's uh, the key point that you made. You fit the nail there on the head because it's not... Ireland don't have to be going backwards to be getting worse if you follow me. So if you stand still in elite-level sport, then you're going backwards because the other teams 
are moving ahead of you. So to present mm-hmm. the fact that England are moving ahead or to present the fact that France are moving ahead only highlights the fact that you're not. You can't stand still and expect to progress in sport. We all know that. But for me, it's just the, the most galling thing is the lack of urgency. So to not qualify for a World Cup and then to have these test matches but not have the clean break that you clearly decided you needed. And that's nothing against Adam Griggs as a coach, but for him to be in for these last test matches before you get Greg Williams in as your new coach, that's just a, that's a waste because you need to kickstart things. You may as well do it as soon as possible. Even these reviews, like how long does it take to do these things? But like at, at the end of the day, how, how has your review taken until the week before Ireland play their next game to complete and you're only making changes now essentially what you're just saying Johnny I just uh, I do wonder if the fact that the players are speaking out so strongly is a suggestion that this is something that has been bubbling under the surface for a while now and these comments are what has been the catalyst to bring them out into the open so you know these games were six weeks ago, but we're still reacting to them rather than being proactive and moving forward. So, you know, because of that delay over these six weeks, and you can even say over a longer period of time of delayed reactions to everything else that was going on and seeing that slide from a World Cup semi-final, Grand Slam, another Six Nations title, seeing that slide and just allowing it to happen through the last World Cup that was here, we all know how that went. And to just just seems like, you know, essentially sleepwalked into a crisis and it's through not listening to the main stakeholders, which are the players. And it's really unfortunate. I think that this has happened on the eve of these games because, as you said, Adam, it should be um, something with the move to the RDS and stuff that would have got more eyeballs on it, hopefully, and what's a big weekend for rugby. Maybe people that couldn't have got tickets for the, the All Blacks game. But, um, look, obviously it's massive amounts of change are needed and hopefully no matter how long it seems like it's going to take hopefully um hopefully we see that but um just two more bits of housekeeping before we finish up so we talked about bradley roberts last week he is now officially welsh capped so uh nine niq for ulster and the other thing is that we will have that a game that long-winded a game will be on friday so we will be back next week, hopefully with Gareth Hanna. But from myself, from Adam and from Michael, thanks for listening.